Hello, this is Todd from Liberty Lake, Washington, and I would never listen to I Doubt It with Dollamore podcast. There's a complete lack of discussion, the hosts are closed-minded, and the nonsensical commentary mixed with the stupid ideas are enough to drag any conversation backward. Please, do not listen to this podcast. The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Dollamore. Everybody, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Episode 665 of I Data with Dollamore. I'm your host, Jesse Dollamore, and today I'm joined by the lovely, the talented, the scholarly co-host extraordinaire, Brittany Page. Let's give some updates on how we're doing in the midst of the pandemic. How are you doing, Jesse D? How are you feeling? I cry a lot more about shit that I usually don't cry about. And I don't mean like, like weeping, what? weeping tears. I just get, you know, like my eyes well up and maybe a tear will drop. Mm-hmm. Like you were just listening to a song by Alan Stone. Right. Um, American Privilege is the name of the song. Right. And I'm not a big lyrics guy. Mm-hmm. You've we said ju- that before. Yeah. I, yeah. So I, I'm... I, I like just the, the the song as a whole. Like I just ah the music and lyrics, they're great. And I'm not like I don't listen to lyrics, mm-hmm. but, then, <laughs> but not like you do. That mm-hmm. the lyrics really move you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just for some reason like really got into listening to the lyrics of the song. Mm-hmm. This was a couple days ago. Yeah, n- not just now. Yeah, even and though I, I was just playing it. Just yeah, now. yeah, yeah. That's what, what reminded me. And I started to like really emotional, mm-hmm. welling up, and mm-hmm. we just re- started rewatching for me and watching for you mm-hmm. the West Wing. Well, I have. I probably got to season two last time I watched it, but I've not watched the whole thing. So right, yeah, right, we're right. starting from the yeah, beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're watching it in tandem with um, our best friends mm-hmm. who live uh, in Washington State, mm-hmm. and. That's a show where, goddamn, and I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if it's because, I mean, I have a, sus- a suspicion that it's juxtaposed against the government we have now and the president we have now and the people who are running this administration now. Yeah. It is just, it is highlighting the absence of competency and patriotism and love and empathy and every, anyway, so it's every episode, like I had to... We're in the first season, and there's this episode where like a homeless veteran dies, and they have this funeral, and I had to fucking like, I'm gonna go wash this dish that I have because I can't be here for this right now because mm-hmm. it, you know, it's, just remove yourself from yeah. the situation. So that's how I'm doing. It's, mm-hmm. it's great because I love being tuned into my shit. Yeah, but I'm finding myself um, more emotional. Yeah, um, maybe a more heavy answer than you expected, but no, I, I. I was looking for how you're doing, and so I want the truthful answer. Uh, and I, I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? Yes, <laughs> good. I'm great. What about you? Um, I think that 
a lot of people are feeling the same way as well. And it's just nice to to talk it out, right? To talk it out. Absolutely. It, it has been very difficult for both of us. Things are difficult for me at work. Things are stressful. And it, it has been very difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my car also broke down oh, last yeah. weekend. And it was, you know, normally I am, I am an anxious person. I just am. I'm kind of neurotic, right? We all know this. And <laughs> we all know yeah, this. And <laughs> I You hear that everybody? You all know this. I get particularly stressed when things happen to me that I then need to rely on other people to help me with. That you're powerless to remedy. Right. And it was particularly bad in this case because the pandemic was happening. So we yeah. we had gone to the grocery store and we were wearing masks and we do not like going out. Like it was, we had to go to the grocery store and we hate it. Can we but- circle back to that when we when we're done with the car story? Yeah, the masks. Yeah, like that I feel phlegmy and I'm just automatically fucking, <clears throat> I feel terrible when we're out. Well, it's, it's again, it's anxiety inducing yeah, yeah. because it is nerve wracking to be out and about, especially with people who aren't abiding the social distancing protocols. They're not wearing masks. I want to punch faces. I mean, if I could punch faces and not violate the six foot thing, I would probably <laughs> just be throwing elbows. It makes me very mad. Well, whatever keeps you in line from assaulting people. <laughs> I but but that's what was stressful about it is we had just finished grocery shopping, went out to the car, the car was dead. And you had kind of noticed that the car was like stalling when you had started up and so we were like, "Uh, oh, is it the battery? Is it the starter? Whatever." So, it, we got it all figured out. We don't need to go through the steps of how we figured it out, but it it was just more stressful in the midst of the pandemic because we were wondering is everything going to take much longer? Like, is the tow truck going to be here? Yeah, yeah. We, how long are we going to be out here? You wore you wore the anxiety on your face immediately when the car didn't start. Yeah, it was just. I mean, it was not the best time for something like that to happen, right? When all this mm-hmm. is going on, and so, but we got through it. Everything worked out. Uh, essential businesses being open, the rental car place being open, yeah. the to do all that mechanic being open, right? All these, all these different places that helped me get through it. Because we roll with one car because we live so extravagantly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that we we're a one car household. Yeah, and so it was just nice that the essential businesses were still open and that we were able to to get through it. But it was stressful there for a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was... Uh, also, by the way, just to put a button on the... It w- was just a dead battery. It was. Yeah, yeah, it was very easy. Not a big deal. Wasn't like some expensive, extravagant fucking thing we had to get fixed. Right. It was, you know, shoddy Toyota battery. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Because we live very extravagantly with a Toyota Corolla. You know, I love Toyotas. And excu- I'm not shitting no, on excuse it. you. If my 97 Toyota Tercel was still able to be driven, yeah. I-, I would still have that car. I loved that car so much. Yes, yes, you did. And your stick shift fucking Toyota Tercel. I don't I don't care about that stuff. You know, I want a car that doesn't break down. That's easy. And I've had the Toyota that I have now for three years, I think. And this is the first time something has happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why that's why you buy Toyota. Well, I, listen, I'm not shitting on it. Sounds like I you just... are. Sounds like you are. 
All right. <laughs> Mo- moving on. <laughs> good times. The other good times kind of a thing is we have been checking the post office box with relative regularity. Don't like to venture out, but sometimes we'll end up down there where the, the post office box is and we'll check it. And we got a, I, I was sent a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lewis Black, Nothing's Sacred, which is great because I've never read anything from Lewis Black. He's a comedian. He's awesome. And I, from time to time, get compared to this guy. Oh, really? Yeah, because he's kind of a fiery... He's he's like grumpy old man, but not grumpy old man. He's just like fucking frustrated, angry guy. Yeah. And he's perfected that thing. Yeah, I love Lewis Black. He's so great. He Whenever he did his bits on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart... It would always be like the highlight of my yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in black with mm-hmm. Lewis Black, right? Yeah. So Mike in Pennsylvania sent this to me, uh-huh. and uh, he wrote a little note. Dear Jesse and Brittany, I know this book is a little dated, but it's still good for some laugh out loud moments. Who couldn't use a good laugh in these crazy times? Hopefully the eggs will make up for any lacking in the literature. Oh, there was also some, uh, some Reese's, like Easter treats in there. Peanut butter eggs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read it as though I was confused and then remembered that the eggs, those were the eggs. No, none of which you ate. <laughs> no, you didn't get any well, of those. Well, they were, they were gone. I, I couldn't find them. That is right. They disappeared. Having been off for nearly two months now, shoulder surgery, two more to go, I really miss the smell of roasting peanuts and chocolate coming from the Reese's and Hershey plants. Summertime is the best for it, by the way. Quick shout out to my brothers and sisters in the Postal Service. Keep up the great work. Hopefully, I will be back soon. I want you two to know how much I appreciate what you do. Keep moving the conversation forward. Mike, the mailman. P.S. Brittany is the best part. Popeye's a good boy. Jesse's okay for a ginger. I'm doing okay. Love the show. Brittany's the best part. Well, well thanks, Mike. Uh, I appreciate the book. Books, booze, and kitchen implements are like my new staple go-to for things that I get. So that's fantastic. And I love Lewis Black. So I, I really appreciate th- it's very thoughtful. The, the treats. What it would be like to live right next to like a chocolate, like a literal chocolate factory. Well, I remember when I lived in Idaho and I would drive to uh, the now College of Idaho. It used to be Albertson College. And I would drive through Nampa to get to Caldwell. And they had the sugar factory yeah yeah or as locals call it the sugar beet factory (laughs) which is not true because they don't create it's not a factory creating sugar beets it's a factory that creates sugar yes and everyone hates the smell of it yeah not good i didn't mind the smell of it well something's wrong with you but you know (laughs) what are you you gonna do well i i know i also used to drink vinegar in the middle of the night as a child so (laughs) there are all kinds of things wrong so many things wrong. Yes. So thank you, Mike the Mailman, for that. It was very kind. We also have some emails to read. Yes. This is from Brad. Do you have any plans to make episode 666 unique, or do you think it might be beneficial to skip that number and just go straight to 667? Kind of like a 13th floor thingamajig. Yeah, he's referring there to, there's a lot of buildings that don't include a 13th floor. You go straight from 12 to 14. Because of the bad luck? Yeah, I guess. Uh, I'm I'm just going to assume this email was sent in, in funny, jest, tongue-in-cheek kind of way, because uh-huh. 
I don't give a fuck about the number <laughs> 666. It's just another number. Yeah. And uh, I feel the same way. We didn't skip 13. We didn't, you know, I, yeah. I don't believe in luck in that way, that there are things that are lucky or unlucky. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There are coincidence. Mm-hmm. Let me let me back that. Uh, because, of course, you get lucky. Right? But it's not because of some metric or a number or a fucking rabbit's foot or some shit. I, I have zero superstition. And that includes religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to... We're going to make a 666 special by uh, doing an episode. It'll be a good time. I don't know. I want, One time I watched the documentary Final Destination, and I think <laughs> that there are some ways that you can avoid negative things happening if you pay attention to the clues I've, and the superstitions. I've never watched that documentary, mm-hmm. uh, nor the movie, Yeah, but it, is there a number component to that? I don't remember. Isn't that it's, the it's one the, where... You can, like, skip death or something. And, like, if you miss your moment, if if you skip out on death, he still hunts you down because, ultimately, you cheated death and you still need to die. You gots to go. Yeah. <laughs> like, you just got lucky, but he's still on your tail. And <laughs> it's gonna death, happen. Is death actually, like, a character that he's... Like hiding in the shadows, lying in wait, or I don't, I don't remember. You watched the documentary, Brittany. Yeah, but the, some <laughs> of the details are a little fuzzy. It was a long time ago, right? Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, we're gonna do episode six 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 as uh, a normal course of business. May have like a séance or something during the show, though. Oh, that would be fantastic. I love talking to ghosts that don't exist. <laughs> So let's, um, do we have any more emails or shall we move on with some voicemails? Well, we have an email that's kind of a follow-up. Um, you know, we talked about the... Would you give uh, Popeye a little jab under the table there? He is sawing logs. He's qu- underneath you. Quite. So. That's why I'm hearing it so much. There we go. Okay. So the we talked about the church on the last episode. The church that... Oh, the church in Ohio. Yes. Yeah, the, the, the covered in the... In the, the blood of Jesus, bathed in blood, and That's they're right. protected. That's He's right. not a Christian! That is still, despite state orders to not gather, holding services, right? So we got an email here from Gabriel. Um, I live in the same neighborhood as the Rock, the Solid Rock Church, excuse me. I was even an unwilling congregant as an adolescent. The church was one of the first megachurches to spring up in the area, and the ideology of the pastors, Lawrence and Darlene Bishop, have frequently been problematic. Attending that church was the first time I had ever seen two collections taken every service, and once I even saw a third collection taken because lightning had struck the marquee out on the highway. Wow. To get a sense of what kind of a church it actually is, simply do an image search of Touchdown Jesus, which was also consequently struck by lightning and burned down to the metal skeleton. It would seem that their God was trying to tell them something, and they just weren't getting the hint. Yeah. I I went to churches like this growing up. In fact, I just reminisced about this because there was a tweet that that listed the net worths of certain televangelist types, Mm -hmm. and then like, said at the bottom, the given zero to COVID support or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kenneth Copeland was one of the guys that I was raised being told was a, a mighty righteous man of God that you were to respect and touch not the anointed of, of God. <laughs> and uh, that guy's a fucking clear and he's a charlatan as clear as the sun is bright. 
It's not, he's not even hiding it with his blowing away of the coronavirus with his weird psychotic eyes. <laughs> I just, you know what I mean? I don't fucking get that. It, it's definitely tragic. I don't get that it. That so many of these characters are able to be put into these positions. Where he's they... worth almost a billion dollars. Yeah. Seven. I was shocked by that number. Well, and the, I mean, the sole purpose that exists for them is to cheat people out of their money. Yes. Right? Take advantage yes. of the vulnerable while they claim to be doing the exact opposite. And it's just, I mean, people have been asking the question, how do these people accumulate this much money? <laughs> and then you have Gabriel here talking about three collection plates going uh, around uh, in one service. I'm in the wrong fucking business. Business, I'll tell you that. This YouTube fucking podcast game, you know, Kenneth Copeland doesn't run with a one-car household. I fucking tell you that right now. <laughs> that guy's got a fucking jet, a Lear jet. And, yeah, and again, <laughs> that's that's not what you should be doing, right? I mean, Maybe we should have the, the proverbial passing of the plate. We'll have like a Patreon mid-roll like 10 times throughout the show. Well, and it... it <laughs> It's frustrating because you have people like Reverend William Barber, right, who's leading the Poor People's Campaign, and he's out there talking about what a moral injustice we have in this country when it comes to not only issues of racism and discrimination, but also inequality. Yeah. And the fact that people are languishing in poverty and that this country is doing nothing. And that guy, by the way, isn't like a reverend like the Reverend Jesse Jackson, who never really talks about scripture. William Barber really goes deep on theology and talking about scripture and reading from the word of God. Right. I use that phrase because it just you also (laughs) it rolled right off the fucking tongue. Mm -hmm. But so he's not like this just political figure. He really is a religious figure who's who's advocating for poor people and the most disenfranchised in our society. Right. And. Again, this is the kind of person that should be elevated, right, rather than these other charlatans that are just solely exist to take advantage of the vulnerable and and the uninitiated. It's it's tragic. Yeah, for sure. So thank you. Uh, for 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 reaching out. It's it's I love the, the footprint of the audience that we've. Something goes on and we talk about it. Invariably, we've got a we've got a listener there to. To kind of be boots on the ground and give us the the skinny. Because that guy, that pastor did seem a little... I mean, he's sitting in a $60,000 truck mm-hmm. giving shit to, to Gary Tuckman. Yeah. You better write, write no fake news about me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so we do... We, more emails or yes, vo- one more. voicemails? All one right. more email as right. follow-up. <laughs> this is from Andy in Oklahoma, the, ah, Andy. the landlord. I mentioned that we were going to be reducing rent by $100 plus, and I just wanted to let you know that our rents are $520 and $700. Yeah. So, so that's a sizable amount. So while it might not be as much as I'd like to be able to do, $100 is at least a little significant. And of all the non-entertaining podcasts, you guys are definitely the most entertaining. <laughs> I love you guys. Uh, I I laughed. Oh, that's great. I laughed when I read five twenty and seven hundred just because I'm I'm so shocked by that. Yeah. I mean, in California, you there's nowhere that's not even five hundred dollars. No. You can't, 
In I mean, Orange a, County, a room yeah, in Orange County is going to be like twelve hundred. Yeah, yeah. You can't get a room in someone's house for five hundred dollars. And and maybe they'll allow you to have access to the kitchen. Like <laughs> we've heard stories, seriously. Yeah, where they tell you to like stay out, stay in your room. You can't go anywhere else. Get a microwave, <laughs> bro. You're going to eat a lot of fucking ramen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tra- it's tragic. It's honestly yeah, tragic. for sure. Yeah. Well, thanks, Andy, for the follow up. That, that does answer a lot of questions because, as I was saying, because throughout this 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 communication back and forth with Andy because he's a landlord mm-hmm. I, I haven't I don't think I've been you know bend in with the way I believe because Andy's a listener mm-hmm. I think I've been pretty straight up and I said that you know a hundred bucks it really depends upon what the rent is right if you were a landlord here like if our landlord said hey we're gonna give you a hundred dollars off and go, fuck you dude who mm-hmm. cares mm-hmm. but a five when your rent's five hundred dollars and they take off 20 percent of it that's that's that is something yeah, yeah, for so, sure. And he also said, for the edification of the audience, if you remember, that that's the starting point. They're going to see where things go from there. Yeah. So thanks, Andy. We appreciate it very much. Now let's get to some voicemails. John um, in the Seattle area, well, I shouldn't say Seattle area, it's Pacific Northwest is what he says, uh, works for an insurance company. We've been talking about the cost of for the uninsured. And even the insured for coronavirus treatment. And he works for a company and has some thoughts. Hello there, Brittany uh, and Jesse. This is John calling from Pacific Northwest. Uh, Regarding episode 664, just listening to it, I have an opinion. Well, thought. What a good thought. I work for a uh, large insurance company, health insurance company, uh, which will remain nameless. And regarding the way that insurance companies are going to cover uh, claims for coronavirus, uh, I've begun to see some claims trickle in uh, from people who have had coronavirus, so I'm starting to get a feel for the actual costs that are associated with that. Not uncommon to see claims come in easily thirty or $40,000 now, knowing, of course, that the uh, amount that the patients will pay is a, a percentage of that. My issue is this. Uh, I think that there are some ways that insurance companies, not just the one I work for, but that all insurance companies can, they can get by without having to, to actually be on the hook, as it were, for these charges. Often when somebody goes in to the hospital, they're tested for the coronavirus. Um, that's obviously going to be covered thanks to recent legislation. However, Sometimes the stay in the hospital morphs once they're there and goes from being a, a stay for coronavirus together with that associated ICD code um, to some sort of secondary things that happen. Say, for instance, pneumonia, um, different things that develop because of the coronavirus. Well, depending on how the claim is then coded, uh, it is entirely possible for the for the entire hospital stay then to be to be viewed from an insurance perspective as not a coronavirus visit. Uh, I'm really curious to see how this is going to play out in the future. Uh, we've heard some communication from leadership that talks about having to make some, quote, hard decisions, end quote, uh, and some things that are unpopular with, with the way that we as an insurance company will step up and cover or not cover things. However, I, I do have to say, just just from past experience, um, 
we're not going to come out on the side of those that are that are suffering because we are ultimately a company and we are you know we are beholden to our to our shareholders so uh anyway i just wanted to give my perspective on that i really appreciate you guys appreciate all you do makes my day when i see we've got a new episode up hope you guys take care and thanks and goodbye fucking john very nice killing it with the sign off yeah let me, um, well, th- I mean, obviously, th- this brings a lot of things to light that we've been talking about and uh, we will continue to talk about into this election. Right. And uh, that is that clearly having a profit model surrounding health care right. is fucking immoral. Mm-hmm. It is immoral that the company has a fiduciary responsibility to its shareholders, which is in direct contravention to the well-being and welfare of the pe- its customers. That is antithetical to to a moral ethical system. Uh, it just it, it's it's we're not there yet, but we're getting there. I I, I think that it's going to be sooner than later, as nebulous as that phrase is, that we're going to to move to a universal healthcare type system, and um, unfortunately, it's going to put people like John who work for a healthcare company, um. Looking for a different line of work. Maybe they'll have to move into a nationalized system and work for the same claims processing type of situation that, uh, that, that will be run by the government. Because as it is now, a for-profit model is without a doubt... In a moral system, so we'd well, love your thoughts on that, though. Well, and it is it is strange to say that the healthcare system is is driven by profits because it it doesn't seem like that should be the case, right? Yeah. When you look at hospitals and how and, and device makers, right, all these things that are so necessary to help us through a pandemic, to help us stay healthy, to help us stay alive, and ultimately, what they are is their businesses, yeah, right, businesses that need to stay afloat that are making calculations about. Uh, are the beds available? How many empty beds do they have? How much money are they going to be losing on that? Like, that's not great <laughs> when yeah. you're calculating into how beneficial that is for just humanity. Yeah, whether someone lives or dies, and the company has the memo that says, we're going to have to make some tough decisions, everybody. Yeah, you know what that means is, yeah, our bottom line is going to be affected, and the decisions that we make are going to uh, end up with people dying and us making a profit or more more money than we would have had we not made the quote unquote tough decision. Yeah. Thank you very much, John. We we uh we appreciate you very much. We would love everybody's thoughts on this. 657-464-7609. Of course, you can always email a voice memo from your smartphone to I doubt it at dollamore.com. More coronavirus related communication. Jeremy in Seattle. One of the things that I've been thinking about since this whole thing started is how blatantly and openly it is exposing the fact that there is an army of low-wage workers without insurance, without adequate sick time, without paid vacation that prop up this entire lifestyle that many of us are accustomed to. And I think that part of me is scared that we are just going to go back to the way it was 
without anybody fully acknowledging that. And not only did these people prop up our lifestyle, but they now are, without ever signing up for it, some of the most vulnerable people amongst us are being put out on the front lines. And we have to do better by them. And I just feel like we, as a country, should be embarrassed at the way that this is right now. Yeah. And I don't want it to go back. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what to do about it. I don't have a lot of solutions in mind right now, but um, as Jesse would say, God damn. Well, Jeremy actually called back and added to this, so let's see if he has any solutions now. Hey, this is Jeremy again. I wanted to call back with an addendum to what I had just said because I forgot to include one of the most important parts that I am struggling with, and that is that I am complicit in this, this whole thing too. Like I, I am fully aware uh, that I am part of the problem, and that's what I'm having a hard time with is that I know that the relief and the change we need isn't at a specific individual level. Um, although we should be doing everything that we can, it's at a system, foundational, structural level, and I have no faith and no trust in the political system that we have now to actually bring about that change. And uh, it feels not good. Not good. I definitely sympathize with this because I feel as though I'm in the same place. You know, when Elizabeth Warren dropped out is when it really started for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then Bernie dropped out uh, or suspended his campaign. And um, I, I'm, I'm really struggling, right? Knowing that the options that we're going to have are, are Trump and Biden. Yeah, right? lackluster at best. And it... It is. It's it's difficult to be in this place where some people are starting to see, right? Look at who is essential. It's people who don't even make $20 an hour that you're relying on right now, right? Yeah. Well, many of them, I mean, it's different here in California because the minimum wage is a little higher. But if you live in Idaho or you live in Arkansas, I'm assuming Arkansas has the just goes by the federal minimum wage, which, by the way, is seven fucking dollars and 25 cents an hour. Right. And a lot of people can now recognize that, oh, shit, people are yes. now unemployed. How are they going to live? Right. I hope those same people were asking those questions just based on minimum wage alone. Right. Oh, shit. How is someone living on seven twenty five an hour? Am I supporting economic policies and, and people right who are going to put economic policies into place that will allow people to thrive and live the life that that they should be living. Yeah, right. I mean, fifteen dollars is absolutely an appropriate minimum wage, and it's something I've shifted on uh, over the years. I used to think, ah, oh, we should have not a, a federal minimum wage, but like a depending on where you live, minimum wage. Because no, no, the minimum everywhere should be fifteen, and if municipalities want to make it higher, then they should make it higher. Anyway. Sorry. Well, and people who are complaining about the $1,200 payment, right? Asking, what is that going to do for me? Exactly. Imagine w what it's like to be someone who's making seven twenty-five an hour 
and your monthly uh, income isn't even $1,200. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So exactly the point, right? And hopefully people are starting to understand these things and make these connections. And like Jeremy's saying, as individuals, we can only do so much, right? We can donate to food banks. We can donate our time for organizations that are doing outreach. And we can be people who try to push the people in our lives to see these things and have frank conversations and try to push people to become active yeah. themselves. But it really does take becoming politically active. And I think for me, one of the more frustrating things that I deal with is people hearing people who talk about how they aren't political, right? That they're not interested in politics. And to me, that just means that you like aren't interested in human issues. I don't. That's all politics is, is working to ensure that people are put into place that will do the right thing by other people. Absolutely. And if you're not interested in in participating in that and having a role in that, then you're not interested in change or assisting humanity to push forward. Well, Brittany, The Bachelor's on. It's hard sometimes because, you know, The Bachelor... Is that, is that, I mean, I hate The Bachelor, but I didn't know that that's what's preventing everyone from voting. Is that what it is? That's all it is. Just if they took it off the air, everyone would get involved. Ah, (laughs) I see. Good to know. Thank you, Jeremy, for the call. We appreciate you, sir, tremendously. If you would like to sound off, um, take part in having your opinion and your questions amplified to a larger audience, 657-464-7609. Email your voice memos and regular old emails to idoubtit at dollamore.com. Support for I Doubt It with Dollamore comes from generous, engaged, intelligent, and good-looking listeners like you by way of Patreon. Your support on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month helps keep the show going and move the conversation forward one podcast at a time. If you would like to join the ever-growing family of supporters, please visit patreon.com slash I doubt it with Dollamore. Christopher. Christopher. Darren. Darren. Laura. Laura. Sherry. Sherry. Barbara. Barbara. We also have some... Holy shit. We also have some people who have donated on PayPal that we want to give a shout out to. Let's give a shout out to Martin. Martin. Joe. Joe. George. George. And... Those emails are weird because they don't all come through formatted the same way. Gary. Gary. Thank you. Fantastic. Yes. We really appreciate all of the support we get. And it's not just financial support that we're talking about because while that is important, it is also important that we have an audience and that uh, you, you folks listen to the program. Uh, it is beautiful every single time we get a new rating and or review on Apple Podcasts. That means a lot. If you tell a friend about the show, if you go to our Facebook page and share to your Facebook timeline one of the episodes that we post, that could be a new listener mm-hmm. who may be converted into a new Patreon person. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of this is about community and sharing the information that we put forth. Look, Hopefully, we provide value in having stimulating conversations to move a greater conversation forward. Right. But also, yeah, fuck, I want to make your day a little better. Uh, Brittany wants to, in, well, you can speak for yourself, Brittany. Mm-hmm. I know I often do, but we collectively want 
to provide value that is both entertainment, Andy, and also uh, information. <laughs> well, and we've we've received some messages from people complaining about how the episodes have become more irregular because we used to have a regular schedule. And someone recently asked, is this because of the pandemic or like what's going on with you guys? And we'll just be transparent. It's a fair question. Yeah. And we'll just be transparent and say like, yes, it has been very difficult yeah. because when we do the show, we need to be in a mindset where we're ready to do the show. And we both need to be in that mindset where we feel pepped up. We feel ready to talk. It takes probably an hour, hour and a half to plan the show. And we're not talking about planning what we're going to say. We're talking about getting the clips, getting the order. And we prefer to do that together, right? Sometimes Jesse does that solo because I'm working and then I come home after work and we do the show. But we prefer to do that like together, right? Um, so just kind of giving you some like how the sausage is made. Whoa, uh, holy shit. Uh, <laughs> that killed me a little inside to say that. But right, you agree with what I'm saying. Absolutely. Where, where because of everything that's been going on and the stress and the difficulties that that we've been encountering. Just like everybody else. Just like everybody else. But we also have been receiving messages where people say like, listen, this makes my day. And that means a this lot. makes things easier for me at this time. And we miss the show. Like it isn't even just complaining. Like, where is it? It's like we just we miss it and it makes our day better. And we wish that it was here. Also know that when we get those messages, I mean, we love getting them. But also there's like a tinge of guilt, like a fuck. Because we, we don't want to let the audience down. Absolutely not. For sure. But I don't want to put out a show right. where I'm fucking glum, glum. Dumb, dumb, yeah. and fucking. I'm really sad right now. Yeah. <laughs> and also, let me say this: this show isn't just flip on the mics and a couple of goons have a conversation. There's a lot that goes into this, right? Like, if you have a conversation with me in real life, it's not. I mean, sometimes it is me waving around my arms like I am right now and acting like a fucking maniac. Mm-hmm. But it, this is an amped up, this is Jesse, you know, at 10% higher than a normal Jesse. And that takes some energy. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I don't, I just don't have it. Yeah. Especially and- now because things are fucking uncertain well, and, this- and shitty and anxiety filled. Yeah. Sorry to talk over you. No, no, it's okay. I do it enough to you that. Yeah, it's payback. Um, <laughs> I, but it's important also to give, I think, give ourselves space for all that stuff right now, right? And like I have been repeating to myself as a little mantra be patient with yourself. Yeah. You know, like let yourself feel those things. Don't feel pressure to be constantly productive during this time. Like give yourself the space to have those moments where you feel terrible and you just want to sit on the couch, drink a Negroni, watch West Wing and cuddle Popeye. I yeah, mean, yeah. I, that doesn't generalize to everybody. Yeah, I'm talking n- about not everybody own. has a Popeye. So, or drink Negronis. Yeah, so just <laughs> whatever you know, whatever your version of drinking a Negroni and cuddling Popeye e- is. Eating a Portuguese egg tart, lean- whatever it might be. <laughs> Very specific recommendations. Whatever it might be. Lean into that. Yes. For sure. Yes. All right, moving on. Stalemocracy. Facing down pessimistic politics with realistic optimism. So, of course, we received this endlessly in messages and posts. The Dr. Drew apology. Yeah, weird. That finally came. And... 
boy, was it not sufficient. Very lackluster. <laughs> but I will... I will give him some props, but I'm also going to talk about the issues with it. But let's let's just let's just show what it was. Yeah, well, uh, for, let me. I want to explain the clip because this is it, he had to do this like 15 minute thing on Periscope because you know he's a media figure and he's fucking using Periscope with no goddamn internet connection. So right in the middle of it, there's like it starts breaking up and shit. We didn't. We're not going to play the whole 15 minutes. Like maybe three minutes of this thing. But when it starts breaking up, just be patient. It comes back, and he kind of repeats himself a little bit. But we just want to give you a flavor for the apology. Everybody say hi. Uh, I'll give you a chance to get in here, because I'm going to say something a couple of times here. I'm going to have to say it a couple of times, no doubt, because um, this um, needs to be said. And so I want to make sure I'm clear. People hear me clearly. So um, my early comments about equating coronavirus with influenza were wrong. They were incorrect. I was part of a chorus that was saying that, and we were wrong. And I want to apologize for that. Uh, I wish I'd gotten it right, but I got it wrong. What I did not get wrong was every time I took a position, I always said, make sure you listen to Dr. Fauci, because he is the person we must look to. I was you know, he was my uh, guiding star in the AIDS epidemic, and he should be your North Star now. I said that every time I took a position, I was yeah. in, I was wrong about comparing influenza and coronavirus. That was loser think, as Scott Adam would say. They shouldn't be comparing the epidemics. I was comparing the numbers, and I'll explain that a little bit later. But uh, I want to be clear that I apologize for getting it wrong. I wish I'd gotten it right. Uh, I did not, thank goodness, get Dr. Fauci wrong. And when Dr. Fauci made it clear that this was not a usual influenza, that it was significantly worse, I adjusted course. Uh, and if you notice, I've been doing at least two hours of media a day, backing, to changing my perspective in such a way as to sign on for the aggressive measures we are taking. Now, the thing I also said from the beginning was follow the CDC recommendations, follow Dr. Fauci's recommendations, they will keep us safe. And I, and I thought that, you know, when the government started taking more aggressive measures, we should all sign up. We had a collective responsibility to do so. I wear a mask outside now. I do what I'm supposed to do. And it's paying dividends. It is improving. It is flattening the curve. And I'm delighted to be a part of that. I'm glad to be a part of that. So um, what I, the re I think the reason I got it wrong is I didn't understand the ferocity of this illness, the way it can crash people. I was just looking at the numbers and comparing numbers, and that was the loser thing part of this. Um, now, I will tell you, uh, as part of my um, responsibility, is I have signed up for California and the New York Health Corps, and I will go to the front lines uh, to serve whatever needs are necessary in either of those states should when. Breaking up. Thank you, Carrie. Uh, uh, okay, guys, and we'll see if we can get everybody in here again. I'm sorry, because uh, I want I want to be very, very clear about this. 35 seconds uh, left. Okay, okay, you hearing me? So I want to pick up where I left off. Thank you. Thank you, Chen. Okay, here we are. So what I was saying before the video cut off is I have signed up for the health corps for both California and New York, and I will go to the front lines should either of those states call upon me or when they call upon me. Um, so I will, I'm just going to get that cl clarified. So let me say again, 
when I compared the coronavirus to influenza at the beginning of this epidemic, uh, I was relying on. And he's done. Uh, you get the point. It went on for like 15 minutes where he repeated himself over and over. But that's the flavor of, w- of what the, the apology was. Yeah. So a couple of things. <laughs> I When he was sh- giving shout outs to different people, it's because on Periscope you can write comments. It's kind of like a live stream on YouTube yeah, right, where right, you can right. see people in real time sending you messages. And it actually plays it back. So you get to see, like if you're watching the Periscope after it was live, you can see those comments coming through. So when I watched this... There would be, you know, hey, Drew, love you from here, blah, blah, blah. But then there were also comments that were like, fuck you, you fake. And so you fake Dr. Freak. I just I thought it was funny that he was like reading through those messages, but only highlighting the ones that were like positive because it reminded me of you. Right. Where I I, I read the shitty comments. Yes. I mean, it reminded me of you that you you also deal with that. Right. Yeah. I'm like when I live stream occasionally. Right. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> Getting into this, so the one thing that I will say in terms of the props, and it's a very small prop that I'm going to give, is he did more than most people do in the media when they are wrong, right? Coming out and saying, I got it wrong repeatedly. I I did the wrong thing. For sure. Just saying the words, I was wrong. Right. It is is somewhat of a deal. Right. I'm not going to say big deal, but... right. Right. It's, it's more it's more than most people do. For right? sure. They would just kind of put their head under the covers and move along. Right. And just continue about their business. Maybe even make a change in their messaging and just not refer to even how it contradicts their previous message. Yeah. Do right? the, the Trump style. Exactly. And so I will say that that is a positive. Now, it's something. Yes, it's something. Now, the rest of it, though, not great. I mean, you can say, Dr. Drew, that uh, you always said look to Anthony Fauci, right? I'm going to say this, but but look at him. Sure, you were saying that, but what you were saying on Fox News was contradicting what Dr. Fauci was saying. Right, right, right. So you can say, this is just like the flu. Look to Anthony Fauci. Follow his advice. You're contradicting what he says. And people aren't people that are watching you, Dr. Drew, are not going to go look up what Dr. Fauci said because they're hearing Dr. Drew. And they got you right there. Right? And they think that you are giving the message that Dr. Fauci is giving, but you weren't. So to be contradicting Dr. Fauci and then saying, but go and follow his advice is a meaningless thing that you were doing. It's also, it's also very, he's couching his apology in, but I also did this. You know, I was also part of a core. It wasn't just me, everybody. Right. That's not, you're not really apologizing. I mean, you are apologizing, but it is, you're, you're lessening the impact of that apology. Right. And then I also, I didn't appreciate when he got into, okay, why did I get this wrong? I think it's because I didn't realize how this disease really knocks people out. Like, just stop. Just stop. Right. The simple answer of why did I get this wrong? Because I'm not an expert on this. This isn't my area of expertise. Yeah, I don't think that's why he got it wrong, though. I think he got it wrong because he's a fucking Fox News drone now, and he went along with what the editorial bent of Fox News is. I think it's both things, yeah, right? Could, yeah, it could be, I sure. Think, I think it's he's not an expert in this area, right? But he uses that doctor in the front of his name as... Yeah, I'm no, no longer... He's no longer Dr. Drew for me. He's fucking Drew Pensky. Well, no, he is a doctor. It's just in his area of expertise, yeah. right? He, internal medicine, addiction specialist... 
stay in your lane. Yeah, but do, right? listen, don't say Dr. Fauci is my North Star, my guiding star, and then not follow what the fucking experts say. Right. So that's why I'm saying why you got it wrong is because this is not your area of expertise. In addition to the fact that you have a political bias that was motivating your reasoning in this area. I I, I just now figured out while the clip was rolling what when he talks about loser think, I thought he was talking about something that Adam Carolla talks about. He's talking about Scott Adams, mm-hmm. that Dilbert cartoon guy who literally thinks Donald Trump is a genius. He's he is full Trump. Mm-hmm. Drew Pinsky is now. Well, I I don't I don't know. I would assume that he is right. I haven't actually seen him be vocal about supporting Trump. I would assume Donald. I would assume that Dr. Drew is a Trump supporter, though. I went and looked at his Instagram. He has pictures shaking yeah. Trump's hand, like a, a collage on his Instagram of all these different pictures of him with Trump, and he follows like Jesse Waters and Ugh, Greg Gutfeld, and, and so it, it is. Again, <laughs> I've talked about in the past how he was my hero, and it, it's just disappointing to see that someone who, in the past, when I was a kid, that I believed to be a champion for the vulnerable, and someone who really understood the complicated human nature uh, behind why people make the decisions that they make and and why they make unhealthy decisions, right, based on things they've experienced in the past, that he has become this conservative right-wing goofball yeah. who has apparently shed all of that experience and, and education that he had in why people well, why people struggle after their early childhood experiences because he can't find a way to monetize being empathetic but he can cash in on the fox news fucking narrative and i think that's a really beautiful point that you just made because it's actually wow. true you know i know that brené brown is like the queen of empathy and vulnerability and she talks about shame and she's she's kind of brought all this stuff into the forefront but it is rare right how many other people can you think of like Brené Brown that talk about these things that have been able to become popular figures for pointing out the gray area right not being black and white for being empathetic toward other people for trying to encourage understanding of why people are the way that they are it's it's rare Hmm. I don't know who Brene Brown is, so I don't. I'm assuming. I mean, I get that she's a figure. I get that. But do you get the point? I was just absolutely, trying to make. Absolutely. Okay. Well, okay. I was. That's why I had a blank look on my. I was just letting you know why I was like, I don't know what to say. Right. Well, you don't need to know who Brene Brown is to understand. I mean, how many? So let me just rephrase it then. How many people can you think of that are prominent media figures that have? been able to create a large platform based on being an empathetic person who isn't about black and white, who points out the gray area, who encourages people to be rational, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, how many people can you think of? I can't. And that's that's what's unfortunate in our society is people that get rewarded are the loudest and most certain, right? They're not people who are skeptical, who point out where we need to be cautious. And that's really where Dr. Drew went wrong, is his certainty. When you hear Dr. Fauci speak, Dr. Fauci is a scientist, right? And Dr. Drew is supposed to be a scientist as well, where everything is couched in, well, do we have enough evidence for this? 
right? If I'm going to speak with such certainty, I need to have evidence for this. And that's really where Dr. Drew went wrong, is he wasn't speaking like a scientist where, well, this is based on the information that I have now. It could change, right? We need to be open to that. And that's really the disappointing part in society is people aren't comfortable in that area. They don't want to hear someone who says, well, based on what we know now, this is the case, but it could change as we accumulate new evidence. Yeah, yeah. People want the answers now because they're afraid. And so someone like Dr. Drew steps up, gives them that certainty, gives them that answer, and it ends up being wrong because that's the nature of science. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, here we are on the day that we're probably going to cross 20,000 deaths from coronavirus in the United States. And that was the number, that, that's the quote that really sticks out to me in that montage is when he goes, well, when we get to 20,000, not going to happen. Flatly, plainly. That's the certainty. Loudly. Right. Nope, not going to happen. Well, here we are, dude. <laughs> and, you know, I, I will give you credit there, Drew, for for apologizing. But, you know, you kind of you kind of had to. Well, and let that be a lesson, right? Of when you try to speak with such certainty on these issues. And listen, I I will speak for myself. I was wrong in the beginning of this too, right? I was talking about how the flu was a bigger threat than this was. And I can freely admit, what the fuck did I know? Well, I didn't know anything because this also isn't my area. But I was parroting things that I was hearing from people that I respect. And they had it wrong, too. Now, do I hold that against them? No, because things change and we didn't have it figured out, right? But people didn't change. I mean, Drew didn't change until he fucking had to change. Well, yeah, he changed much later than... is than you would expect for someone of his education and status. And also in the field, he can talk to colleagues right. who are fucking experts in virology and fucking immunology and epidemiology. Right. Anyway, so we wanted to talk about that. Right? We'd love to know what you think about it. 657-464-7609. I doubt it at dollamore.com. Here is another example of someone speaking out of whatever expertise they may have. And you may have heard that Joe Rogan on his show the other day said that he'd vote for Donald Trump, not not vote for Biden, not just choose not to vote for president, but he will vote for Donald Trump rather than Joe Biden. Choice at all. How yeah. so? I, I want a choice of an actual president that's viable. I don't have one. So right. then you're going to ask me, well, which which of the non-viable people do you like best? Well, this is the this is the real ex- issue with the Democratic Party. They've essentially made us all morons. Yeah, with this Joe Biden thing, they really have. <laughs> they made imagine? us all morons. Who do we need? I mean, can, uh, I can't of, vote for that guy. I can't vote for him. I can't vote for him. I can't vote for Trump. There, I would, I'd rather vote for Trump than him. I, I don't think he could handle anything. I mean, you're relying entirely on his cabinet. Like, if you want to talk about a an individual leader that can communicate, he can't do that. And, and we don't even know what the fuck he's going to be like after a year in office. The pressure of being the president of the United States right. is something that no one has ever prepared for. Right. The only one who seems to be fine with it is Trump, oddly enough. I mean, he doesn't seem to be aging at all. Or in any sort of decline. You know, Obama, like, almost immediately started looking older. Yeah. George W. almost immediately started looking older. I think that this is not a change in Trump. Like, Trump, in a weird way, has just always been this performative, uh, you know, like a fake alpha. Right, and he still plays golf all the time. Like, he hasn't switched up much. I mean, I'm sure he switched it up a little bit because of the pandemic, because he's apparently a germaphobe, which is hilarious. But this this could be his demise. (laughs) 
You know? I mean, isn't that kind of hilarious? That yeah. That, that might be what does him in. The guy's always been worried about germs, apparently. How does that work with his... Uh, all right, all active right. Ex- so that was Eric Weinstein, we should have said, or Weinstein. I don't know which one it is. But uh, he's one of the like intellectual, intellectual dark web dingbats, right? Right, yeah. So this is just remarkable coming from Joe Rogan, who is held up as like, you know, he's like one of these logic bros who is supposed to just say things that are completely irrefutable and everything he says is like logic and reason. And, uh. Uh, yeah. No. I mean, how absurd is this line of reasoning that... I mean, it's this, it's the same exact thing with Donald Trump. I don't understand how it's any different, right? You, you can, have to rely entirely on Joe Joe Biden's cabinet. Like right. we're not doing that now I with the idiots that Trump has picked. Donald Trump brags about not reading anything, right? He already yeah. has all the knowledge that he needs. He doesn't update his views on anything. He won't read the briefings that people give him. I mean, it's absurd. I don't even understand how a thinking person said this out loud who has like the number one podcast and is so influential over people. And now this is going to be a line that people will repeat when it's so stupid. I, I, it's just shocking to me. Well, he's also giving cover to Bernie people who, who are angry that Bernie's now dropped out and he's not going to get the nomination that they won't get a chance to vote for Bernie for president. So they're, there's a, there's a contingent of people who aren't going to vote for Joe Biden who now may say, well, Joe Rogan, He endorsed Bernie. He's going to vote for Donald Trump. That's fucking dangerous. It's a misuse of your platform. It gets worse, though, because on a later show, he made a few comments about those comments that you just heard. You know what? I'd also vote for Whoopi Goldberg over Joe Biden. I'd I'd vote for Mike Tyson over Joe Biden. I just don't think it's a good idea to take someone who's struggling with dementia and put him in one of the most stressful positions the world has ever known. That's what I'm saying. I mean, it's, it's not yeah. an endorsement of Trump. It is, it is a, me saying you shouldn't have a man who's clearly, clearly in the throes of dementia. This is also one of my favorite things, right? You have people like Joe Rogan, other, you know, I don't know what other phrase to use, like logic bros, right? That are held up as these, these men or prominent figures that all these like all light alt-right people look up to as just logically dismantling people right and he is someone who will will say to you right listen to the experts right expertise is so important we need to look to the experts and then he without any medical training he's not a psychologist right will talk about cognitive decline that is so obvious right he didn't it's not even i think you're being very very charitable because he said he didn't say cognitive decline. He said who is clearly, clearly in the throes of dementia, which he's not clearly in the throes of anything. You fucking zero expertise goon. Look, Joe Biden. I could see that maybe he's he's lost a little giddy up, a little a little jump in his step, maybe, but clearly in the throes of dementia. Where's that diagnosis coming from, Joe Rogan? Well, and he's 77 years old. I mean, we're dealing with people who are nearly octogenarians. Of yes. course, of course, they are going to be uh, less cognitively astute than they have been in the past. Yes. They're almost 80, for God's sake. Yeah, man. So it's just so it's just so frustrating to listen to this and know that he has such a prominent platform 
and and he is so influential over so many people and that this is the way he's using his platform. Yeah, listen. For for what? For I, what is the motivation? I don't understand. Who, who fucking knows? More viewers appealing to a this broader audience of fucking Trump morons. And maybe that's what it is, actually, is the controversy that it creates. Because here we are talking about him, right? And so he gets more attention. And that could be what it is, honestly. The He's, attention. He, Joe Rogan is a fucking dipshit. That's just what it is. And the reason I say that, let me bolster my point of his dipshittery. Here he is in the same interview with, with Eric Weinstein. Weinstein, however you say his last name praising, heaping praise, and legitimizing James O'Keefe of Project Veritas. Now, if you don't know who Project, what Project Veritas is, remember back during Obama's administration and the, the vote acorn scandal that he ended up having to settle out of court with? For these people that he lied about and deceptively, edit, deceptively, deceptively edited? Jesus. Um, these these videos that he makes uh, a couple years ago, there was this video of him going into an abortion clinic and talking to a doctor and he decept decept Jesus. What is happening? Deceptively edited a video of an abortion doctor talking about selling body parts. And they made it seem like this this horrific, ghoulish kind of a thing. And it was. All lies. Well, it's a, all it's, of it was lies. It's a right wing activist group. That's what they do, and they the goal is to expose left wing media figures and left wing organizations through the use of, like you said, deceptively edited. Yeah, video well, at least clips. you can say it. Yeah. One of us. Yeah, it's not like we do this for a living or anything. So this is not this is not someone who should be elevated. James O'Keefe is not someone that should be talked about as though he runs a legitimate operation or that he's someone deserving of respect or that he's he's doing something for the greater good. He's a liar. He's literally been charged criminally for his behaviors in, in the process of making his his stupid little exposés. He's motivated by political bias. It's a it's a right wing activist group. And so the way that they talk about it here in this clip is just shocking when when you know what we're dealing with here. I wanted to talk to you about one of your podcasts I listened to least recently. You listen to a podcast? Yeah, yeah. It's controversial. Um, the O'Keefe podcast. Oh, okay. The Project Veritas guy. Yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting one because you had a really good point in that people, when they hear that this is a Project Veritas thing, and for people who don't know who he is, James O'Keefe from Project Veritas, they've, uh, they've done a lot of work exposing some biases that are held by some of the people that work in these social media groups, social media corporations like Twitter and Facebook and things like that. But the way they've done it is all through hidden camera type stuff. And there's a narrative that people love to use where they go, oh, that guy, he uses selective editing or that guy, you can't believe anything they say. Everything he says is wrong. But that is impossible impossible because you're listening to these people talking and they're talking about how they marginalize right-wing viewpoints they look for people who have like manga and they're headlined and they put them in certain categories where it, make it makes it very difficult for people to get their their, right. their stuff that the algorithm supports you know that they they know how to uh, marginalize the and Enough. I mean, what what is so again, what is the motivation here? Right. They're talking about he can't be wrong about everything. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm sure Tommy Lahren is also right about some things. Does that mean that she's deserving of a platform and that people should listen to her, right? I'm sure Sean Hannity is right about things sometimes, right? Yeah, when he updates what time it is. Sure. He, (laughs) right? It it doesn't matter. The point is that it's deceptive, right? Also, on the whole, this guy's work is dishonest. On the whole. Right. Yeah, there might be elements and kernels of truth to what he's trying to point out. That's the fucking point of what he does. And it's also the struggle that exists, right, when you're trying to figure that out, right? Yeah. What is deceptive here? What is the kernel of truth that has gotten through? Why even bother with someone where you have to wonder, Right? Yeah, he, he's it's muddling the truth to to confuse the issue. Right, right. Why talk about how someone has been wronged because sometimes they're right, but mostly they do deceptive things. Like what? What are you talking about? Yeah, it's anyway, so confusing. Just, he, there's no credibility with Joe Rogan. If you listen to his pot, I'd love to hear someone call in and and give me a rebuttal to this because I know we have audience members who listen to his show because he's got the most fucking popular show. Well, and listen, I'm not. I'm. I don't want to be viewed as going as far as you saying that, well, what did you just say? I don't know, that that he's a dipshit. What else were yeah, you been, have you been saying? Yeah, dipshit. Not credible. Yeah, not credible. Yeah, I guess I agree with that. I don't think he's credible. But not, you know, I, I mean, maybe not the dipshit. Yeah, I, go, I always go farther. I'll tell you what. Well, it's not really necessary, but... <laughs> the views and opinions expressed by Jesse Dollarmore are solely those of Jesse Dollarmore and do not reflect the views and opinions of Brittany Page, who is a far superior person and much more measured and reasonable in her views and analysis. It's the measured and reasonable part that needs to be said. Well, and I would I would agree that he's not credible. And I think that's what's unfortunate and kind of getting back to what we were talking about earlier, where if you have been able to build this large following and you've been able to rise to the top of podcasting, for example, there isn't a lot of room to be super rational all the time. And that's what's kind of funny about these characters that get pegged as being hyper rational and hyper reasonable when in fact they're really not. Yeah. Right. Um, they can. It's kind of like Drew saying it's it's the flu is much worse. But listen to Dr. Fauci. Right. You can be unreasonable and then say, but here's the reasoning skills we need to follow. And uh. well, here's my thing on this is when he says I'd rather I, I would vote for Donald Trump bef- before I vote for Biden. I get it in the in the heat of the moment saying something. Fucking trust me, everybody. I get it. I step on my dick all the fucking time and go a little overboard. Like in a moment of frustration. Yeah. Right? But then when given a chance to think about it and then the next day or days later, rather than say, yeah, you know, maybe not. He's like, I'd vote for fucking Mike Tyson. <laughs> I'd vote for Mike Tyson before I'd vote for Joe Biden. Get the fuck out of here. You had your chance. You fucking blew it, Mr. Project Veritas lover. But he's not, listen, they're not the only ones. Joe Rogan's not the only one. Eric Weinstein or whatever the fuck, he's not the only one. This is pervasive, even obviously, we've talked about Fox News before, even among the Fox News personalities that used to be not completely nutter butters. Mm -hmm. George W. Bush's former press secretary, Dana Perino, apparently she has a show where she interviews people. I think she was filling in for... Bill Hemmer, who, oh, okay. who has taken over for Shepard Smith. Oh, right, right, right. That's right. what I think yeah. was happening here. So she's interviewing a Harvard medical professor, medical school professor named William Hazeltine. And it is a remarkable exchange 
And I also look, we're going to obviously we're going to play it because I'm talking about it here. But I love how he does not succumb to the Fox News bullshit. Sir, can you tell me your thoughts about um, this draw? Everybody wants to find a cure or a treatment or a therapy for coronavirus. What do you think about the drug that um, is used normally to treat malaria? Uh, well, thank you for uh, the question, uh, Dana. It's sad to me that people are promoting that drug. We know already from studies, at best, it will have a very mild effect, at very best. There are studies that conflict a little bit, one from the other. One concludes it has no effect. The other concludes it has a mild effect. The net result is, whatever effect it has, it will be very mild. That drug has been used for years against many other viruses to no effect. The thing that makes me sad about that story is some people may take it who are on other medications, who are other underlying conditions, and may have very serious, even life-threatening consequences. It is not something to take unless a doctor prescribes it. And the government is not saying that a doctor could not prescribe it. Um, but that should be something that is worked out between them. And what about the, and I know you don't go by anecdotal evidence, but there are stories of people saying that they've had this Lazarus effect by using this drug. That is nonsense. Complete and utter nonsense. And in any situation, there are always going to be people who promote one kind of quack cure or another, and there are Lazarus effects. In every epidemic I've ever looked at, it's always the case. Let me just repeat. We know that at very best, this drug will have a very mild effect on changing the course of the disease, if it has any effect at all. That is what the data has shown so far, and I am convinced that that's what further studies will show. And it's not without adverse consequence. It is irresponsible to promote this drug at this time. Well, and I, if we're keeping in step with kind of the theme of what we've been talking about, I think when he said, I am convinced that future studies will go on to support what I'm saying here. You think that's a little out of the scope of what it should be? Right. I think it's not great. Um, And I'm just saying, if we're keeping with the theme here of of trying to point out when people shouldn't be speaking with certain terms, right? He can say, I believe, right, that that future studies will continue to support You think convinced is a little... Yeah, because it's showing kind of a motivated reasoning there hmm. right yeah, and, yeah no, and, it's awesome yeah and so i just i want to point that out even though largely i really appreciate what he did here especially in response to the question where she said i know you don't look to anecdotal evidence but a lot of people have been saying right, right? yeah yeah not only that but then using the term the lazarus effect which lazarus in the bible was raised from the dead that's the kind of miraculous effect they're trying to promote from this drug that donald trump and his family is are invested in Mon- monetarily making money well anyway here's here's the other thing that i want to talk about and it, it goes kind of to this same theme of these individuals who are they have a platform and i believe they are misusing their platform and look 
it is no, it's not going to come as a shock or as a surprise to the audience that I don't have a lot of respect for Bill Maher. He is, he is, he is anti-science. He is a guy who's an anti-vaxxer. He's a a vaccine skeptic. Let's just say that, not anti. He's also anti-GMO. Yeah, he's also anti, he's a anti-trans bigot. He's just not a great guy. Here he is last night on Friday on his show talking about his new rules. And he's advocating, trying to to justify the racist naming of this virus by Donald Trump, who wants to call it the Chinese virus. Not the Wuhan virus, the Chinese virus. And here is Bill Maher giving that racist trash space. And finally, new rule, you can't yell at someone for breaking a rule you just made up. Scientists, yes, scientists, who are generally (laughs) pretty liberal, have been naming diseases after the places they came from for a very long time. Zika is from the Zika forest, Ebola from the Ebola River, Hantavirus, the Hantan River. There's the West Nile virus and Guinea worm and Rocky Mountain spotted fever and, of course, the Spanish flu. MERS stands for Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. It's plastered all over airports and no one blogs about it. So why should China get a pass? Congressman Ted Lieu tweeted, the virus is not constrained by country or race. Be just as stupid to call it the Milan virus. No, that would be way stupider because it didn't come from Milan. And if it did, I guarantee we'd be calling it the Milan virus. Jesus fucking Christ, can't we even have a pandemic without getting offended? When they named Lyme disease after a town in Connecticut, the locals didn't get all ticked off. (laughs) Ticked ticked off. Seriously. Hilarious, dude. It scares me that there are people out there who would rather die from the virus than call it by the wrong name. Let me take issue with that, you fucking goober. Who would rather die from the virus than call it the right name or call it whatever name? You fucking dumb shit. Who? What? Name me one person. I'd rather die from the virus than call it the Chinese virus. What the fuck? Well, and it'll become more clear toward the end of the clip here, but he's he's almost speaking as though... Part of the solution to, as he characterizes it, the emergency that we have here is somehow related to what we actually call it, right? As though, yeah, the, yeah, as yeah. though the name somehow makes a difference in whether or not we can be successful at fighting it, right? I mean, does he take issue with the fact that we haven't settled on what we officially refer to it as, right? Some people call it coronavirus. Some people prefer the COVID-19. Like, I, I know yeah. it I know it means the same, but there's different things that people are calling it. And so does he take issue with that? No, he's, he's making some weird argument that because we don't believe it should be called the Chinese virus, that that is PC and somehow damaging how effective we can be against the virus. Yeah, I don't also every other one that he named Zika from the Zika forest. There's no Zika people, Ebola river, Hanton river, West Nile, uh, the Guinea worm, which isn't the scientific name. That's just because from the 17th century, that's what they called it because it originated there. You know, the real sensitive people who named something in the 1600s. 
um, Rocky Mountain Spouted Fever. There's not a Rocky Mountain people. It's not a racist thing. Um, the Spanish flu, which is talking about where the, the, uh, the, the people that it came from, the country that it came from. In 1918, when the Ku Klux Klan was rising again in America and they were still lynching black folks by the hundreds and thousands in our country. So, yeah. But even in that case, it's very unlikely that the Spanish flu originated in Spain. It's been suggested that it the source could be France, China, Britain, uh, possibly even the United States. Like, right. So that characterization, the name, we don't even actually know where it specifically originated from. Interesting, though. Bill Maher also called MERS. He called it the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. That's not even the fucking name of it. It's Middle East respiratory syndrome yeah the 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 graphic on the video had it correct he read it incorrectly to prove to to make his point so listen i wouldn't have an issue if they called it the wuhan virus i wouldn't Mm -hmm. but calling it the chinese virus is without a doubt fucking racist and i would i would submit that calling it covid19 is more appropriate because it's going to give people an awareness of the danger of a mutating coronavirus that that there is something very serious a threat to the world from a mutating coronavirus covid19 is coronavirus disease 2019 that's what it stands for and if somebody wants to be looking into that they'll know holy shit if there's a coronavirus 2022 COVID-22, it could really pose some problems. If anything, it educates people, lets them know, yeah, fuck, I need to get a flu shot. Right. This could be a deadly thing for me. Well, it's also strange that Bill Maher isn't convinced that it's a problem simply based on the fact that there has been an increase in racial violence against Asian Americans because because of calling it the Chinese virus. Exactly right. And he does address this point later in the clip as well, but not in an effective way. Seriously, it scares me that there are people out there who would rather die from the virus than call it by the wrong name. This isn't about vilifying a culture. This is about facts. This is about life and death. We're barely four months into this pandemic, and the wet markets in China, the ones where exotic animals are sold and consumed, are already starting to reopen. The PC police say it's racist to attack any cultural practice that's different than our own. So I guess I was speaking out of turn because he he doesn't get into that in the clip that we're going to play. What did I clip off? Because he went on for a long time and I I kind of, I just cut it off. Where, Where, are you talking about when he talks about people wearing niqab, burqa, no, there's a point in, in, in the clip where he starts talking about how basically racists will use any excuse to oh. engage in racial yeah, violence. Yeah, yeah. And that's not a great argument. You know, I mean, yes, it's true that they'll use any excuse to engage in racial violence. But why give them? Yeah, when you promote that that narrative on with your giant media platform. Right. Why gift them uh, a reason to? Yeah. Why plant the idea in their head? Why have a president who's repeatedly making these claims, ratcheting up the fear and fervor surrounding this issue, and then provoking people to commit acts of violence against Asian Americans for no reason 
other than racism and prejudice that has been created by calling it the Chinese virus. Yes. L- listen, I, I want to play a clip from Vox that really, I don't know if everybody's heard this, and if you have, this is about eight minutes long, but... This is a clip from Vox explaining how the wildlife trade in China is linked to the creation of the the coronavirus. It, so there listen, there is a nuanced conversation here. China is to a degree culpable for this because of policies, because of communism, because of the way they run their their economy. It is it is a conversation to have, but it's not based in racism. It's just not. So if you've already heard this, you can skip ahead about eight minutes. But this is a fabulous um, description of what it is, all of the different market forces and political forces that led to where we are right now with the wet markets in Wuhan, China. It was New Year's Eve 2019 when health officials in China admitted they had a problem. The health authorities have activated their most serious response level after an outbreak of a new type of viral pneumonia in central China. A rapidly growing number of people were developing a dry cough and fever before getting pneumonia. And for some, it turned fatal. Doctors have named the disease COVID-19, or Coronavirus Disease 2019, indicating that a type of virus is causing the illness. When they tried to trace its origin, they found a likely source. This food market in Wuhan. Out of the first 41 patients, 27 had been here. It wasn't conclusive evidence, but Chinese officials quickly shut down the market. They had seen this happen before, at a place just like this. The health officials are trying to get a grip on an alarming outbreak of SARS. The virus originated in mainland China. It spread across the country. The disease had been festering for months in southern China. In 2002, a coronavirus had emerged at a very similar market in southern China. It eventually reached 29 countries and killed nearly 800 people. Now, 18 years later, this coronavirus is in at least 71 countries and has already killed over 3,100 people. So what do these markets have to do with the coronavirus outbreak? And why is it happening in China? A lot of the viruses that make us sick actually originate in animals. Some of the viruses that cause the flu come from birds and pigs. HIV-AIDS comes from chimpanzees. The deadly Ebola virus likely originates in bats. And in the case of the 2019 coronavirus, there's some evidence it went from a bat to a pangolin before infecting a human. While viruses are very good at jumping between species, it's rare for a deadly one to make this journey all the way to humans. That's because it would need all these hosts to encounter each other at some point. That's where the Wuhan market comes in. It's a wet market. A kind of place where live animals are slaughtered and sold for consumption. It was not a surprise at all, and I think that it was not a surprise to many scientists. Peter Lee is a professor and expert on China's animal trade. The cages stack above one over another. Animals at the bottom are often soaked with all kinds of liquid animal excrement, pus, blood, or whatever the liquid they're receiving from uh, the animals uh, above. That's exactly how a virus can jump from one animal to another. If that animal then comes in contact with or is consumed by a human, the virus could potentially infect them. And if the virus then spreads to other humans, it causes an outbreak. 
Wet markets are scattered all over the world, but the ones in China are particularly well known because they offer a wide variety of animals, including wildlife. This is a sample menu reportedly from the market in Wuhan. These animals are from all over the world, and each one has the potential to carry its own viruses to the market. The reason all these animals are in the same market is because of a decision China's government made decades ago. Back in the 1970s, China was falling apart. Famine had killed more than 36 million people, and the communist regime, which controlled all food production, was failing to feed its more than 900 million people. In 1978, on the verge of collapse, the regime gave up this control and allowed private farming. While large companies increasingly dominated the production of popular foods like pork and poultry, some smaller farmers turned to catching and raising wild animals as a way to sustain themselves. At the very beginning, it was mostly peasant household backyard operation of turtles, for example. That's how wildlife farming started to get off the ground. And since it started to feed and sustain people, the Chinese government backed it. So it was imperative for the government to encourage people to, you know, to make a living through whatever productive activities they can find themselves in. So you can lift yourself out of poverty, no matter what you are doing, that's okay. But then in 1988, the government made a decision that changed the shape of wildlife trade in China. They enacted the Wildlife Protection Law, which designated the animals as resources owned by the state and protected people engaged in the utilization of wildlife resources. That's one of the most devastating problems of the law, because if you designate the wildlife as a natural resource, that means it is something you can use for human benefits. The law also encouraged the domestication and breeding of wildlife. And with that, an industry was born. Small local farms turned into industrial-sized operations. For example, this bear farm started with just three and eventually grew to more than a thousand bears. Bigger populations meant greater chances that a sick animal could spread disease. Farmers were also raising a wide variety of animals, which meant more viruses on the farms. Nonetheless, these animals were funneled into the wet markets for profit. While this legal wildlife farming industry started booming, it simultaneously provided cover for an illegal wildlife industry. Endangered animals like tigers, rhinoceroses, and pangolins were trafficked into China. By the early 2000s, these markets were teeming with wild animals when the inevitable happened. The latest on the deadly SARS virus, the worldwide death toll, up again today. China has reported more than 1,400 cases of infection nationwide. It is what health officials have feared all along. In 2003, the SARS outbreak was traced to a wet market here in southern China. Scientists found traces of the virus in farmed civet cats. Chinese officials quickly shut down the markets and banned wildlife farming. But just a few months after the outbreak, the Chinese government declared 54 species of wildlife animals, including civet cats, legal to farm again. By 2004, the wildlife farming industry was worth an estimated 100 billion won, and it exerted significant influence over the Chinese government. Wildlife farming industry was tiny in China's gigantic GDP, but the industry has enormous lobbying capability. It's because of this influence that the Chinese government has allowed these markets to grow over the years. In 2016, for example, the government sanctioned the farming of some endangered species, like tigers and pangolins. By 2018, the wildlife industry had grown to 148 billion won and had developed clever marketing tactics to keep the markets around. The industry 
has been promoting, you know, these wildlife animals as, you know, tonic products, as, you know, bodybuilding, as sex enhancing, and of course, as disease fighting. None of the claims can hold water. Yet these products became popular with an influential portion of China's population. The majority of the people in China do not uh, eat wildlife animals. Those people who consume these wildlife animals are the rich and the powerful, a small minority. It's this minority that the Chinese government chose to favor over the safety of the rest of its population. These parochial commercial interests of small number wildlife eaters are hijacking. China's national interest. Soon after the coronavirus outbreak, the Chinese government shut down thousands of wet markets and temporarily banned wildlife trade again. Organizations around the world have been urging China to make the ban permanent. Chinese social media in particular has been flooded with petitions to ban it for good this time. In response, China's reportedly amending the wildlife protection law that encouraged wildlife farming decades ago. But unless these actions lead to a permanent ban on wildlife farming, outbreaks like this one are bound to happen again. So in this clip, they talked about the pangolins. I think I'm saying that right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I had no idea what a fucking pangolin was. I, when I first heard it, I heard penguin. And it's not penguin, it's pangolin, which... I have a whole new fear now. <laughs> I didn't know that these were a thing. Yeah. They are terrifying. It is an armored fucking... It's like a cross. It is. It's like an armored animal. It's like a cross between like a small aardvark and a fucking armadillo. <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> Has a long rat tail and a rat face. It's terrifying. So uh, when they're talking about the the zoonotic uh, transmission, right? How it, well, how it got... That's, that's an... That's a new word. How it got from the pangolin to a human, right? What's zoonotic mean is what I'm saying. It's the it's giving a disease from an animal to a human. Oh, okay, okay. And yeah, yeah, yeah. and so pangolin to human. But this has been something that that people keep talking about, right? The bats, right? Eating the bats. Uh, that's how all the bad stuff happens. Is people are eating bats and people are eating quote unquote weird stuff, and that's you know causing all the problems. And that's like a very simplistic view. Super simplistic. You hear from people who do this research and they're like, listen, it's very hard to track how this happens, how this transmission actually happens. Is it eating? Is it someone being bit by the animal? Yeah. Right? We we don't know. It's hard to determine that. I mean, imagine trying to track the source of, of how this all began. That's why it's a nuanced conversation. It's not Chinese virus. Right. And listen, if someone got bit by a pangolin, I really hope they're okay because I can't even imagine how it, terrifying that experience would be. It looks like it's got a little pinhole mouth. Does it have a chomper on it? I don't want to investigate. It's not like a fucking raccoon. I'm, listen, I'm not going to investigate this any further. There's you're, just one photo here and that's it. Tonight you're going to dream about pangolins, aren't you? I'm hoping that I'm, I'm, I'm inserting that into your dreamscape that you're going to have like this inception go on where you're just inundated by pangolins. Listen, here's what really pisses Walking me off. Walking upright. Here's what pisses me clawing off. Clawing at you with their fucking scary shit. They give it the cute name of pangolin where you think, oh, it's like a penguin or I something. And then you Google it and you're like, oh my God. <laughs> this, yeah, this, this is the worst thing that I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> Just horrifying. Very funny. 
All right. Well, anyway, we'd love to know what you think about this. This is a nuanced conversation, and we want to have a nuanced conversation about it. 657-464-7609. Email those voice memos and regular old-fashioned emails to idoubtit at dollamore.com. Now, one of the other effects uh, of the coronavirus in the United States specifically, and I'm sure around the world, I'm just less less, uh, up on that, is... As we've been talking about with Andy calling in and and clarifying things with us as a landlord, is that right now nearly a third of Americans didn't pay rent in April. This month, Staples, the corporation, decided even though they're open, they're not paying rent to their landlords. The Cheesecake Factory, which obviously is a restaurant that's Probably hanging on by dear for, for dear life with carry out. I don't know what they're doing over at the Cheesecake Factory, but they're also not paying rent mm-hmm. in April. Well, in Staples, in their letter saying that they weren't going to pay rent, they didn't propose any payment deferrals. They didn't say anything about whether they're going to pay May uh, just pay, fu- just pay rent you. in May, yeah. right? So it's basically no answers, and just we're not we're not going to be paying. Right. So it is again. If a business, a corporation, isn't able to or chooses not to, how are we to vilify one-third, nearly a third of regular everyday Americans who aren't paying theirs? We just need the rent to be gone if we can't work. We can't work. We can't pay. Renters line the streets and circle in cars, calling this rent strike. It's the first day of the month and nearly 50 billion in rent is due in the U.S. If a lot of us are already choosing between food and rent, we're saying to choose food. Across the country, rage rising with job losses climbing. Renters have been sharing warning letters from landlords online. One warns rent is due on the first. Nothing has changed. One extends the rent deadline only until April 10th. And this one stresses rent is still due. If you've been laid off, it adds, places are hiring, like grocery stores, Amazon, Walmart, and more. Renters are fighting back from this Los Angeles protest to signs of resistance posted across the Midwest, from Chicago to Brooklyn, New York, to New Orleans, pledging to not pay. Los Angeles and New York mayors issued no eviction orders, but renters say that's not enough. If we can't pay that rent and we're in debt, how are we supposed to get out of that debt post-quarantine? Did you lose your job? Yes. All of us lost our job. Because of coronavirus, says Shawana Anthony. She used to make enough at Restaurant Rosa Mexicano to cover her Los Angeles apartment rent. Check out my little 500 square feet. $1,100 a month. How are you going to pay this $1,100 rent? I don't know. When you're scared, you don't see nothing but fear. So those people, they don't have nothing else but a sign in their car. These rent strikers, you you feel for them. Oh, absolutely. 20 years ago, it would have been me. But today, Matthew Heisert sits on the other side as a landlord. He is working with his tenants, but can only do so much. I have no ability to handle this beyond a couple of months. His family started out in a small condo just before the 2008 mortgage crisis, which left them $70,000 underwater. Unable to sell but able to rent the condo, they're still climbing out of the red. Someone loses their job. They can no longer afford to pay rent. 
follow it through. If I can't pay that mortgage and I have to pay that mortgage at some point, well, that could bankrupt me. This is all a unbelievable fucking mess. Yeah. And the government is not doing enough. Are they really doing anything fucking yet? No. And have, have you gotten your payment from the government? I haven't gotten mine. Yeah. And and I, they're talking about sending more payments, right? The first payment hasn't even yeah. arrived. Okay? He's, he's making promises before he's delivered on the first fucking promise. Right. And and I don't just I, the blame here doesn't doesn't solely lie at the feet of Donald Trump. It's also Nancy Pelosi, Democrats who aren't pushing enough for proposals that would actually that go benefit. far enough. Right. Yeah. And I know the Repu- I know it's a battle, right? I know it's not easy. And I know that's very simplistic for me to say that Democrats aren't doing enough because they did push Republicans to do more than they initially agreed to do in the first version of, of yeah, the bill. Yeah. But it's not enough. It's uh, not enough. There, there weren't uh, timeline uh, requirements on getting this stuff out. That needs to happen. Yeah, and it's just, it's such a mess. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. People are, people are not able to pay their rent. They're just going to be, this hole is going to get deeper, right? And. Let let me, let me interrupt you. Listen, this is what I would advocate for everybody to think about. When you're choosing who to advocate for. It, it kind of goes to what I wanted my my New Year's resolution to be. Do you mean politically? No, just who are we going to think about and who are we going to... Oh. Listen, it's punching up versus punching down. Listen, I worry about Andy, the listener, the landlord, mm-hmm. and his family because that's their business. But who am I going to worry about more? It's the people in a, in a, in a more tenuous social station. Right. The tenant. Absolutely. Yeah, I worry about Andy, but I worry more about the people who pay him to live in the place that he owns. Mm -hmm. So, listen, that guy at the end of the clip, yes, fuck. That's goddamn bummer, for sure. But I'm more worried about the people who pay rent to him. $50 billion is the number they just said. Gets paid in rent per month. Every month. $50 billion. Look, it's going to have this ripple effect for sure because some landlords don't have it like some other landlords where they can they're rich as fuck. But when you're when you're when you're when you're doling out your empathy, think about the people who are really going to be shit on in this. And and it is, again, a nuanced conversation. It's not fuck all landlords. But if you're a landlord who's sending out, yeah, you know what? The grocery store is hiring. Fuck you. You get nothing from me. Anyway, let's uh, let's move on to a little good news. Oh, let's have some good news. <laughs> For the love of God, let's have some good news. Um, there there are and there have been developments um, about the, de- uh, the, de- the, the development. There have been developments about the development of an antibody test, which Dr. Fauci says are coming soon. Joining us now is Dr. Anthony Fauci. He is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force and one of the busiest men alive. We so appreciate your time, Dr. Fauci. Thank you for being here. Good to be with you. Let's start with the antibody tests. Um, I've heard you say that they have been, some have been developed and even validated. Are we really just days away from them being in use? 
Yes, actually, at the last task force meeting, the, the individuals responsible for, for both developing, validating, and getting the test out are saying, and, it, and I'm certain that that's going to happen, that within a period of a week or so, we're going to have a rather large number of tests that are available. One of the things that you mentioned that's important because other countries have gotten burned by this. These antibody tests are tests that we do on other diseases, but they need to be validated. You need to make sure that they're consistent and that they're accurate. And that's what we're doing now, both with the NIH and with the FDA, is validating them. As soon as they get validated, they'll be out there for people to use. And so, Dr. Fauci, <clears throat> does that mean, what does that mean for us? Does that mean that we are shifting away from an emphasis in testing for coronavirus to antibody testing to see who has had it and recovered? No, not at all. I mean, th those things are done in parallel. One does not uh, essentially rule out the other. We still rely appropriately and heavily on the test to show that someone is in fact infected. Whereas the antibody test says that you were infected and if you're feeling well, you very likely recovered. When you're trying to find out whether a person is infected, that's the test we always talk about. But as we look forward, as we get to the point of at least considering opening up the country as it were, it's a very important to appreciate and to understand how much that virus has penetrated the society. Because it's very likely that there are a large number of people out there that have been infected, have been asymptomatic, and did not know they were infected. If their antibody test is positive, mm -hmm. one can formulate kind of strategies about whether or not they would be at risk or vulnerable to getting reinfected. This would be important for healthcare workers, for first-line fighters, mm -hmm. those kinds of people. Can you imagine a time where Americans carry certificates of immunity? You know, um, th that's possible. I mean, it's one of those things that we talk about uh, when we want to make sure that we know who the vulnerable people are and not. Uh, this is something that's being discussed. I think it might actually be have some merit under certain circumstances. Did you hear the lack of certainty in that answer? This is something I'm going to start highlighting when we hear people speak. I like it because it's something I overlook a lot of times. It's, it's honestly, it's comforting to me when I hear people talk like that. And I'm, I'm not always the best at all. I, Brittany, I, you're always the best. I'm number one. Um, you are always the best. Love the show. Brittany's the best part. I, I think it's something we can all work on, though, right? We can, yeah. we can all practice it a little bit better. That is something I can be certain of. Oh. <laughs> Very nice. But it is. It's comforting to listen to him and it's reassuring to me and I feel like he is very knowledgeable and yeah, yeah. open to whatever new available evidence may come his way also, and able to shift his perspective based on that new evidence. Also delivering some good news there right. that this antibody test which isn't a substitution for testing for uh, infection but it will give us an idea, a metric going forward about how many people maybe are immune mm -hmm. who have already been infected and recovered. So that's that is something. Yes, that is something. Absolutely. It's the asshole of today.
Larry David. <laughs> Larry David. Now, I love Larry David, and this is very sad for me to have to put him in this segment, but he earned it, and he earned it with his comments about Woody Allen. Now, Woody Allen published a memoir. Uh, it was There was some controversy surrounding whether or not his memoir would be published because it, it was actually going to be published by Hatchet, which is a publisher that had published... Uh, Ronan Farrow's book. Who is... Catch and Kill. Who is his son, maybe not by biology, it's it's up in the air, but he was raised some of his life by Woody Allen. Right, and Ronan Farrow came out and took Hatchet to task and said, like, you know, are, are, this seems irresponsible. Are you doing any fact-checking? You didn't talk about how you were going to be publishing this. Like, it just seemed kind of shady. Ultimately, they didn't publish. He had to take it somewhere else. Right. So it was published by Arcade on March 23rd. And can, can I can I just very briefly, the audience probably knows, but Woody Allen married his adopted daughter, mm-hmm. Sun Yi. Mm-hmm. He married his daughter. So, and there's allegations that he molested... Uh, his his other daughter, Dylan Farrow. Dylan Farrow. Mm-hmm. So, but 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 we know. Look, we we have a we have a, a benchmark here. It's a guy who married his daughter, who it is alleged molested his other daughter. It's not a real leap in logic to assume that he may have done that. There's also a lot of evidence, circumstantial may it be, that he did this. So. He wrote the memoir, Larry David's a huge fan, and I just, (laughs) I love this quote. Larry David was interviewed in the New York Times, and I just, I love the reasoning skills on on display here from Larry David. So... When when he was talking about the memoir, he said, yeah, it's pretty great. And it's a fantastic book. So funny. You feel like you're in the room with him. And it's hard to walk away after reading that book thinking that this guy did anything wrong. <laughs> really? You mean he's not going to raise questions to his guilt? Yeah. In his own book that he wrote? Yeah. <laughs> Larry David is like every teenager, me included, who watched Zeitgeist. And then came away believing that 9-11 was an inside job. Yeah, right. right? I mean, this is the level of reasoning skills that that he's displaying. It's it's very unfortunate. I listen to Alex Jones, and it's hard to walk away not really believing that there might be gay frogs out there. Right, yeah. I mean, come on. idiot. Come on, yeah. I I heard this guy tell me about how innocent he is. Mm, I believe him. Right. Yeah, I believe him. He he did a good thing. Uh, Without, you know, weighing the evidence from both sides, without really doing any research, I just, I spoke to him, and yeah, he seems like a good guy. Larry David has worked for Woody Allen, has been in his movies and shit. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that, but apparently he has. He's been in at least one of his movies, yeah. So anyway, Larry David, asshole of today. Mm Mm-hmm. As always, we'd love to know what you think. 657-464-7609. There's where you can leave a voicemail of fewer than three minutes. You can also email us a voice memo of fewer than three minutes to idoubtitatdollamore.com. We would love you to consider supporting us on Patreon. You can go to teamdollamore.com, which, by the way, that domain just renewed. I forgot we even fucking had that. That will... I was speaking to Brittany, who's not looking at me. Uh, That will... That will redirect you to Patreon. You can also get there by dollamore.com slash Patreon. Any amount goes a long way to helping produce this show, helping to help um, move the conversation forward on an episode-by-episode basis. If you're not in a financial position like many of you are not right now because of everything that's going on, 
Rate and review us on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts. That goes a long way toward pushing our show into the faces of new people. You can also, like we talked about earlier, go to our Facebook page. Share the episodes that are on the Facebook page. This one's going to post. You can go to the Facebook page and share it to your timeline. Maybe give a little blurb on your on your, on your your share of the post saying, hey, this is a pretty cool show that I like to listen to. You should listen to it too. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Brittany E. Page, at Dollamore, at I Doubt It Podcast. But most importantly, and this is the most important thing that we want you to do, be patient with yourself. This is a very, yes. very difficult time. I thought you were going to be funny and you're being serious and awesome. And it's I love a, it. It's a very difficult time for a lot of people and it is okay to wake up feeling bummed out. It is okay to end your day feeling bummed out. Reach out to people. Stay in communication. Don't isolate. Try to do little things here and there that do give you some joy and that connect you to the things that make you feel good. And don't feel like you need to fill your days with productivity, just endless productivity, right? Take some time, do some healing, whatever that may be for you. Absolutely. So we are going to go. We appreciate every single one of you for all of the time that you spend with us each week. Be genuine. Take care of one another. And for Brittany Page, I'm Jesse Dollimore, and this has been I Doubt It.